Namaste everybody and welcome back to another session of meditation and philosophy. Today we are on home ground, at least it's my home ground and also home ground for most of us uh, because we're going to speak about Vedanta. Um, I had mentioned just to put it out there that when I talked about Buddhist meditation, it's something that it is, uh, I'm not initiated into it, nor am I authorized to teach it. It's something that I have studied and uh, academically and also practiced a little bit myself. That's why I was teaching, but it, it's good to be clear there. I also made it clear that the Kashmiri Shaiv is a tra tradition, though it's part of the Hindu tradition, I still not, I'm not initiated into it. And there you really have to be initiated into those traditions to uh, teach it. I have, uh, I have and I am only studying it academically under some very good teachers um, and also have practiced a little bit of it myself and that's what I shared. But the devotional tradition we talked about last time, that's very much part of our tradition. And now we have come to the core of our own, my own tradition, our own tradition, which is Vedanta or Advaita Vedanta. So, yes, I am authorized to teach. I am initiated. I am a monk of Vedanta and authorized, initiated to practice and teach. All right, so let's go. So what is Vedanta? Most of us already know this, but it's good to start by uh, highlighting that. Vedanta Nama Upanishad Pramanam. Vedanta is the source of spiritual knowledge called the Upanishads. Upanishads we know are these texts spiritual philosophical texts which are found in the Vedas, which are the most ancient and the most fundamental religious texts of the Hindus. Perhaps the most ancient available record of uh, spirituality, which is available to humanity at large. So in the Upanishads, we find what might be called the final teachings, the highest teachings of the Vedas. So in that sense, uh, Anta, when you say Veda Anta, um, the end of the Vedas literally does not mean the end of the Vedas because sometimes the Upanishads are found scattered in between the Vedic corpus. It means Anta in the sense of the, the final, the highest, um, the conclusion. In Sanskrit, Siddhanta, the final conclusion, the conclusive teachings of the Vedas. And um, based on the uh, Upanishads, so Upanishads, basically, the textual basis of Vedanta is the Upanishads. If you say, what are the texts? What are you talking about? We're talking about Upanishads. But based on that, there is the Bhagavad Gita, which is the essence of the Upanishadic teaching and in put in the form of a very practical spirituality taught by uh, Krishna to Arjuna. 
Gita does not claim to be anything original apart from the Upanishadic teaching and Sri Krishna is, uh, uh, is cognizant of that. Often he actually quotes directly from the Upanishads. So the Bhagavad Gita is part of the basic uh, set of texts of Vedanta. And then you have another text called the Brahma Sutras. So all systems of orthodox philosophy have a set of sutras, which are aphoristic uh, statements, uh, very short, cryptic Sanskrit uh, sentences. The set of the sutras, it systematizes the entire knowledge. It's like a compressed, a compressed zip file, you know, in a computer zip file, you have a lot of information which is packed in. The sutras are like that. You have a whole system of philosophy of spiritual knowledge packed into a few short sentences. So you have the Yoga Sutras, for example, um, Patanjali's Yoga. You have uh, much more complex than all of these sutras. You have the, the Panini's uh, grammar. Uh, Sanskrit grammar is based on a set of large set of sutras. But similarly, you have the Vedanta Sutras, um, Brahma Sutras. Brahma Sutras and Vedanta Sutras are the same thing. Uh, they, they take up the teachings of the Upanishads and they reflect, they rethink, and they try to systematize. But because they are sutras, they are cryptic, and so they are open to interpretation, and they have been interpreted. Uh, in fact, they are in many ways open-ended, so they allow for multiple interpretations. And they have been interpreted in different ways. And these interpretations of the Brahma Sutras, which are based on the Upanishads, these interpretations of the Brahma Sutras are foundational for the various schools of Vedanta. So Vedanta is not just one school. There are multiple schools of Vedanta, multiple darshanas or philosophies which have come out of the Upanishads. Advaita Vedanta is based on Shankaracharya's uh, commentary on the Vedanta Sutras. Vishishta Advaita Vedanta, the qualified monism of Ramanuja, is based on Ramanuja's commentary on the Brahma Sutras. Uh, Dvaita Vedanta, dualistic Vedanta, um, is based on Madhvacharya's commentary on the Brahma Sutras. And you have um, Shuddhadvaita Vedanta of Vallabhacharya. You have the Dvaita Dvaita Vedanta of Nimbarka Acharya. You have the Achintya Bheda Bheda uh, of Baladeva Acharya, which is the philosophical basis of, you know, um, in the United States, people are very familiar. The Iskon, the Hare Krishna people. So they have their philosophical basis in one school of Vedanta called the Achintya Bheda Veda. Um, what we are going to talk about here is Advaita Vedanta. So I'm um, zooming in. I've given you the big picture. Now I'm zooming into the specifics of what we're going to do today, next time, and the time after that. Advaita Vedanta, which is one school of Vedanta, but quite distinct, as we shall see, pretty unique in the whole spectrum of religion and philosophy and spirituality, Advaita Vedanta is pretty unique. Um, all the other schools of Vedanta, they are basically dualistic and devotional. Ramanuja's Vishishta Advaita, Madhva's Dvaita Vedanta, uh, Shuddha Dvaita Vedanta, Dvaita Dvaita Vedanta, and of course, the Iskand, the, the Gaudiya Vaishnava, Achintya Vedavet, they are all devotional. They are all about God and devotion and worship and faith, beautiful systems, but they are basically, therefore, they are all theologies. And they are uh, reasoning based on certain assumptions about God and, and, and presuming faith. Advaita Vedanta is very different. It is uh, pretty unique that way. 
So we're going to talk about Advaita Vedanta. One advantage of Advaita Vedanta is what it teaches can be said pretty um, simply. That's the title of today's talk. You might have seen Tattvamasi, that thou art. So this is from the Chandogya Upanishad, one of the Upanishads in which the teacher who's the father tells the student who is his actually son, that thou art, talks about the ultimate reality of the universe. And then finally tells the student, tells his son, you are that reality. Tattvamasi, tat means that, it's pretty close to the English that. Tvam means thou, you. You, my son, you, the individual being, and that the cosmic reality, you're actually one and the same reality. And this is supposed to be realized and this will solve all our problems. There are these two points here. All of these systems, I'm not just talking about Advaita Vedanta now, what we did in the last three classes. In fact, all of these philosophies, especially the philosophies coming out of India, they are all meant for realization. They're all meant for self-realization. As Vivekananda said, religion is realization. It's not believing in something or giving your assent to a doctrine, um, following a particular system or subscribing to, you know, I belong to this religion or this organization. No, it's about realization. I remember Swami Premeshanandaji, who was a disciple of the Holy Mother, Masharada, and um, in his own lifetime, he was regarded as an enlightened person, as Jivan Mukta Brahmagyani. Um, his sevak attendant for the last more than 10 years of his life was um, Swami Suhitanandaji, who is now the vice president of our order, uh, Shanatan Maharaj. He was a young novice, a brahmachari at that time, of course, a long time ago in 1960s. Um, and I had the good fortune to start my monastic life and my early training under Swami Suhitanandaji. So he used to tell me stories about Swami Premeshananda. There was this other elderly gentleman in the ashram when I joined the ashram many, about 26 years ago, Badal Babu, elderly gentleman, very devoted person. Now, it seems, so he had, um, uh, he, he was not a monk formally, but he was very monk-like, I mean. He never went into householder life. He was a spiritual practitioner all his professional life. After retirement from his job, he stayed in the ashram. I'm talking about Badal Babu now. And so in his young days, he used to go to Swami Premeshananda when um, Swami Suhitananda was a young brahmachari at that time. So this is, this is the story about those days, 1960 or so. Um, so Badal Babu had this uh, tendency, you know, this uh, interest in yogis and, uh, you know, spiritual seekers and, and sadhus, monks, um, tantrics, and practitioners of different kinds. And he would go and visit them or read about them and then come and tell Swami Premeshananda about it. You know, Swami, I met this uh, person who has been practicing medicine, meditation in this way, or I read about this yogi who lived in a cave and he had these experiences and so on and so forth. One day, Swami Premeshananda said to him, with a touch of pathos, you know, like a little bit of sorrow, uh, I'll tell you in English, and for those who understand Bengali, I'll tell you the original Bengali. What he said was, my dear boy, his name was Badal, but, um, which means cloud in English, but uh, affectionately he would call him Badla. So Badal, but just like a sort of play on the word Badla. He said, my dear boy, Badla, um, look here. If the whole world were to turn into Ramakrishna, 
Not only the whole world becomes spiritual, everybody becomes enlightened. Not only enlightened, let everybody become an avatar, an incarnation of God. Ultimately, what is it to you or to me? If we do not realize it in our own lives, it, it's wonderful. The world will be transformed and everybody will be extraordinary. All that's really good. But at the end of our lives, what does it really matter? You know, what we have read or whom we have met or how wonderful they were. So in, in Bengali, he said, Ore badla, jodi shara jagottai ramkeshto hoye jai, tate tori baki, amari baki. What is it to you or what is it to me? The whole emphasis is on enlightenment. We must realize it. That's one reason why I, I really, really like this Advaitic uh, approach. Because of all the approaches, this is the most direct. It is concerned solely with self-realization, with enlightenment. As soon as possible, as fast as possible, as directly and as powerfully as possible. As simply as possible. We'll see how. So this is um, one thing which I wanted to say, uh, that it is all about self-realization. And the second thing I wanted to say was, just like, and remember, it's not just Advaita Vedanta, all the others, Kashmiri Shaivism, Buddhism, uh, the devotional approach, they're all about self-realization. They're all about God-realization. Uh, the other thing which I wanted to say was, all of these approaches, and especially the Advaitic approach, is about overcoming suffering and attainment of uh, fulfillment. In Sanskrit, Complete cessation, transcendence, overcoming of suffering. I'm using the words very carefully. Transcendence of suffering. Transcendence of suffering does not mean an end to suffering. The world will go on. The body will go on. COVID will come and go. Uh, so that will not be ended by Advaita Vedanta. So transcendence. You are in the middle of it and yet you are not. So that is, that is what, that is the goal. And fulfillment, lasting fulfillment, deep, lasting, profound fulfillment. So that's the goal of Advaita Vedanta. And it's also the goal of all those other systems as well. Okay, having said that, Advaita Vedanta is very direct. I mean, I can go on singing praises of this system because I suppose I'm a little bit, a wee bit biased about it. So what does it say? That thou art. You are that. These sentences which express the, the central teaching of Advaita Vedanta, which is the identity of the individual and the ultimate reality. Jiva, Brahma, Aikyam. Ident your identity. You are one with the ultimate reality. The sentences in the Upanishads which state this, these are called Mahavakyas, great pronouncements or great sentences. For example, Tattvamasi, that thou art. Aham Brahmasmi. I am Brahman, means exactly the same thing. The teacher tells you that thou art, and you are not supposed to say that thou art. Then you can just keep going back and forth between you and the teacher. You are supposed to realize, I am that. Aham <laughs> Brahmasmi. Another, so Aham Brahma Tattvamasi is from Chandogya Upanishad. Aham Brahmasmi is from the Brihadarnik Upanishad, um, which is from the Yajur Veda. The Chandogya Upanishad is from the Sama Veda. Um, and then there is, I am Atma Brahma. This very self is Brahman. Again, it means the same thing. This very self, I am Brahman. So this very self is Brahman. This is from the Mandukya Upanishad, which is from the Atharva Upanishad, or Atharva Veda. And then there is Pragyanam Brahma. This consciousness, the awareness which you feel, this is the ultimate reality. Uh, this is from the Aitariya Upanishad, uh, which is from the Rig Veda. 
So from each of these Vedas, one statement has been taken from one of those Upanishads as a representative of Mahavakyas. But the Mahavakyas are many in number. Such sentences are scattered across the Vedas, across the Upanishads and across the Vedas, in fact. Okay. Another way in which the central teaching of the Advaita Vedanta can be put, if, uh, oft quoted, is Brahma Satyam Jagat Mithya Jiva Brahmevanapara. Brahman alone is real. The world is an appearance. And you are none other than that ultimate reality, Brahman. As we go through the talk today, I hope by the end of the talk, I would like you to see that you know, at least in our understanding, we get what it means. Something so radical and stunning as saying that you are that ultimate reality. You are the only reality of the world. The world is an appearance. What do these things even mean? How can they solve all my problems? How can they give me lasting fulfillment and peace? So this is the promise. At the end of today's talk, we will know this for sure. Now, if you do not, you have questions. Definitely, you're most welcome to ask questions. What I'm trying to say is, it is, it is understandable. It's not very difficult at all. And it, just the understanding of it, which we can have in the matter of an hour and a half, it, can, it is producive, uh, productive of great peace, um, great, um, it, a great lightness of being. You know, it, it's a great, great, great relief just to hear this. In Sanskrit, there is a term, Shravana Mangalam, auspicious just to hear it. Um, Swami Vivekananda said, the truth is a corrosive substance of infinite power. Hear it once. Even if you don't understand it, even if you don't agree with it, it will continue to work. If not in this lifetime, well, let's hope in this lifetime. I'm hoping in this class. But uh, uh, over time, it will, it will work and it will, give its, it, will, it will have its way. And you will get the result. The result being overcoming suffering and attainment of peace. All right, big promise. As we go into it, what kind of journey are we undertaking? I've said this on other occasions, but you have to listen carefully. What kind of journey are we undertaking? What is this Advaita Vedanta and what is it not? One way of understanding Advaita Vedanta is to understand what it is not. So you have to listen carefully. Um, one is this journey, it's not a physical journey. It's not a journey which is um, it's some kind of physical astral journey from earth to heaven. You go to Vaikuntha, the abode of Vishnu, or Kailasha, the abode of Shiva, the Christian or Islamic heaven. No, we are not talking about going to a place. It's not a journey from here to there. It's not a journey through space. It's not a journey from one place to another place, from a not so good place to a much better place. I'm not saying those things are not possible, but it's not about that. It's not a journey from one place to another. Because that reality we are talking about here, that ultimate reality, is not only there in whatever great place you can think about, but it's also here, equally here. So there's no point of going from one place to another. Which part of the ocean will you go to to find water? You see, what a silly question, Swami. Wherever you are in the ocean, there's water. If it's ocean, it's water. So it's like that. The ultimate reality is available right here. It's available everywhere and it's available right here, right here. You don't have to go anywhere. Then it's not a journey in time. Journey in time means from now to then. When? The coming of the Messiah, 
or the coming of the next avatar. And we had this monk, uh, Sri Ramakrishna had said he would come again and he had left some clues. So the coming of the incarnation is a great, great big event in spiritual life. So we had a monk, very great, before my time, Jagadishwaranji. I have read his books, very scholarly and saintly monk from what I've heard, those who have met him. But he got this bee in his bonnet, a holy bee in his bonnet, about when is Sri Ramakrishna going to come next? And so he pursued that till the end of his life. Coming of the incarnation, coming of the Messiah, or after I go to, after death, then only I will be free. Then only I'll be free after death. There are many, many philosophies and theologies which believe that, that only perfection is possible after death. How can you be perfect here? How can you be in life? How can you be fully, you know, transcend sorrow here in this miserable place in this body? No. Vedanta says, Advaita Vedanta says, it's not a journey from now to then, you know, after death or after the coming of the incarnation, after going, uh, after something will happen, not after. See, after is a time word. But the reality we are talking about is it, it transcends time. It is timeless. What is there then afterwards is also now. It is all the time. At what time will you find the ultimate reality? At all times. If it is available at all times, then it is available now. Will it be available in a better form, a more distilled form? Um, now it is two shot and then it will be a one shot vaccine later on then? No. It is always equally good available right now. Right here, right now. It is also not a journey from one object to another. It's something to be understood. Mostly in religion, we're seeking an object. Though we don't use that language, but you know, it could be God. It could be an experience, a samadhi, uh, you know, a burst of light or a beautiful mystical experience, um, a meeting God who is not me, something else, some other reality called God. I love that story about Ramana Maharshi where somebody goes to Ramana Maharshi and says that your uh, method of inquiry, who am I? I love that, but I, I like that, but I, I don't really, uh, it's not really my way. I am devoted to Narayana, to the Lord Narayana. Is it all right? And Ramana Maharshi said, yes. Oh, it's all right. Yes, it's all right. Then uh, after death, will I go to the abode of God, to Vaikuntha, to the abode of Narayana? And Ramana Maharshi said, yes. Oh, I'll go to Vaikuntha, yes. Um, and will I see Narayana there? Will I see God after death in heaven? Ramana Maharshi said, yes. Oh, really? I will see Narayana? Yes. And will Narayana look at me? Will God see me? And Ramana Maharshi said, yes, yes. Will God speak to me? Yes. Oh, Narayana will speak to me? Yes, yes. And what will he say to me? He said, he will say, Find out who you are. Who am I? You know, find that out. <laughs> so, but I love that story. It is not a journey from one object to another, from you to something else. It may be God, it may be incarnation, it may be Buddha, Ramakrishna, Jesus, Krishna, Rama, um, uh, Narayana, Devi, Durga. It's, we're not talking about that. It is not even a new kind of experience. All extraordinary, we are not denying that. All those extraordinary, beautiful, mystical experiences are possible. 
visions of gods and goddesses are possible but we are not talking about that at this point somebody may say well then i've lost interest because i am interested in that experience i want to see narayan or see god no you should not lose interest because what we're going to talk about is the very foundation of that experience it is there in this worldly experience we are having now it is there in the depths of meditation it is there in the heights of mystical experience also it is one experience it is it is the the essence of all experiences if you understand what we are going to talk about you will see no mystical experience no samadhi is higher than what we are going to talk about if you understand what we are going to talk about today you will see that no uh, vision of of gods or goddesses no mystical experience no samadhi um, you know is valuable in itself they are all meant to bring you to this this is the purpose of all those practices so it's not a journey in space it's not a journey in time it's not a journey from one thing to another thing even not even from one type of experience to another type of experience then what is it what kind of a spiritual journey is it it's a journey from ignorance to knowledge in sanskrit avidya to vidya from agyana to gyana from not knowing not realizing to knowing and realizing that's the journey and that journey is accomplished by what we will do today what is it not advaita is the path of knowledge from ignorance to knowledge by which i mean i am speaking to people who are mature so you will not misunderstand it is the path of knowledge by which i mean it's not a path of uh, bhakti devotion it is not a path of yoga meditation it is not a path of karma action immediately let me take it all back that karma yoga bhakti action devotion meditation all have their place yes indeed in advaita vedanta also they have their place they are essential but but i will be cheating you and if if i do not distinguish what i'm going to talk about today from those paths those are the paths you have already seen the other three sessions buddhism is par excellence a path of meditation um yesterday the last class was a path of devotion and uh, kashmiri shaivism is a is a very wonderful mix of um, mysticism and devotion uh, meditation but this is different this is different it's not it's not yoga it's not karma it's not bhakti we must understand advaita in its own um, in its own light and then we we can integrate we can integrate it back and we will see what role other things have to play but we must understand it in its own glory and it is a glory it's an amazing thing all right i have sold it enough um oh i also said it's not a path of action this is something that shankaracharya goes uh, to great extent to distinguish the reason is because uh, he is distinguishing it from the purva mimamsa the ritualistic portion of the vedas which is full of ritual action ritualistic action but action nevertheless chanting and meditations and actual physical rituals and he wants to distinguish the upanishads advaita vedanta from that so he says the atman which we, the ultimate reality which we are going to talk about is not accomplished through action what can you do through action he says apya um, utpadya 
vikarya samskarya apya means attain something which is not attained you can attain through action you are you are here and you want to go to the next village you can take the village pathways and go there that's attaining something which is not yet attained um, but you can't do that to the atman because as we said it's everywhere where do you go it is always it is you what will you do to it's like saying um, um, so what will you do at, to attain yourself you are already yourself um, similarly utpadya it can't be produced the ultimate reality is not something that is to be produced you know um, and th- this sounds simplistic but you can see if you relate it to the history of philosophy the whole of hegelian evolution from the primeval absolute to the evolved final evolved state of the absolute so it is something to be evolved through through the process of dialectics and reaching an a state of excellence advaita vedanta says absolutely not that um, that's not what we're talking about it's not something to be produced like you produced grain in a field you do you can't produce the absolute it is not something to be to be modified or changed vikarya like just like milk is modified into yogurt you can't modify the individual being into the ultimate reality it can't it's not possible unless you are already that ultimate reality you're not you're not talking about converting the human into the divine you can't convert if you are if your reality is actually human you you will remain human you will remain a creature you will not it, it's you are not god and then it's samskarya samskarya means refinement improvement can we improve are we talking about improving ourselves becoming better people better beings until we become god like not at all not at all what improvements will you make to into uh, to say the image of a golden mouse to turn it into uh, gold you can improve it you can melt it and change it and make it into a golden ganesha this is a reference to ganesha and ganesha has a mouse you know in the uh, imagery so the mouse is a mouse and ganesha is god so to turn the mouse into god you would have to melt the mouse form and put it into a ganesha form all that you can do but if i ask you the golden mouse to what refinement do you have to make into the mouse to make it gold nothing it is gold so the ultimate reality is there you don't have to refine yourself into that ultimate reality so karma karma can only do these things produce something attain something change something refine something none of these are applicable to the ultimate reality which you already are so karma is not involved here at all action change is not involved here okay i still haven't started but um i think we have got a solid foundation to build upon what is the process now what is the process of advaita vedanta every path is a process so in um, meditation you you're taught how to sit how to breathe and how to visualize in devotion you're taught about god and uh, the glories of god and how you can have faith and devotion in god uh, in ritualistic worship you're taught something and so on so what is the process here the process here is hearing reflection and meditation shravana manana nidhyasana in the brihadaranyaka upanishad is there atmavare drashtavya the self is to be realized is to be seen how do you see the self the real self is so you have to hear about it you have to reason upon it and you have to meditate upon it shravana manana nidhyasana hearing literally does not mean only hearing it means systematically studying studying what all these texts are available that's why it's there you hear it again and again you hear means you are 
taught it. It's not just like hearing music. You have to engage your all your uh, faculties. You have to like really put effort into trying to understand what is being taught. Um, the Upanishads are there, the Bhagavad Gita and Brahma Sutras, of course, there. But so many texts, so many masters today, not only the original Sanskrit texts, but also in other languages, now in English. So many texts are there which give you this central teaching. There is Aparokshanubhuti, there is Drig uh, Drishya Viveka, there is Vakya Vritti, Vivek Churamani, you know, Vedanta Sara. So many, many, many texts. But they all teach you the same thing. That's the beauty of them in various different ways. So you won't be bored uh, in different ways. The Shravana must continue hearing this again and again, being taught it, listening to this. Nothing new. Not one thing will be new. When I said that thou art at the end of this class also, I'll just say the same thing, that thou art. But we'll understand it much more clearly. We'll see what is meant. So Shravana, systematically studying, literally hearing, but systematically studying. And by the way, before this, a lot of preparation has to be gone through. That's where the role of, you know, when I said action is not to be discarded, karma is useful, devotion is useful, meditation is useful. All those are useful as preliminaries, as preparations to come to this stage of Shravana. So those will go on. It's not that you finish those first and then come to Vedanta class. No, those will go on in our lives. We will lead ethical lives. We will have devotional practices. We will uh, meditate. So uh, altruistic, ethical action in our lives, uh, devotion, surrender to God, and um, regular practice of meditation and focus. These are uh, like uh, a solid foundation for Vedanta, for Vedanta Shravana. Shravana means hearing. Um, it's a name in India. I uh, recently, one of the, the a professor who's joined Harvard uh, a few months ago, her name is Shravana, so a very Vedantic name. <laughs> um, so once you go through Shravana, what do you get? You get a clarity about what these texts are. The specific purpose of Shravana is to remove doubt about see, pramana samshaya. That means doubts about the source of knowledge, the text. What is Vedanta teaching me? If you go through this Shravana once, twice, thrice, you have no more doubt. I know what it is teaching me. Then what, what remains? I know what the texts are telling me. I know what the teachers are telling me, but I have many doubts. I don't get it. Then you go to the second stage, manana. Again, these go on parallelly. Today you'll have shravana, you'll also have manana. You have many questions uh, about every aspect of spiritual life and especially about Advaitic teachings. So those questions, which are doubts, is it possible? How is it that I am not a body? How is it that I'm not a person? What is this nature of consciousness, existence, what you're talking about? Is there at all such a thing? Aren't they abstractions? All these questions and details, you know, like every minute detail you can examine, you ask, you're supposed to understand. See, here is something interesting. Let me put it this way. Um, devotion is accomplished through the heart. By heart, I mean desire and love and passion all our love, passion, desire for the world is collected and poured to, uh, to God in faith and adoration. That's how bhakti works. That's how devotion works. It works. It's based on the heart. 
I mean, I'm not saying that there won't be action, there won't be thinking, there won't be other things, but but mainly it's based on the heart. It depends on uh, channelization, sublimation of your of your emotions. Meditation, it's based on the mind. All other things are there. The body has to be stable. The desires have to be quietened. But it's the mind which has to focus. The mind, which is a series of thoughts about scattered things, it has to be brought under focus into awareness, into calmness. So meditation is mind-based. Devotion is heart-based. Uh, karma, whether ritualistic karma or act actually action in the world, is will-based, is based on the will. Um, I will use my body-mind to do this. So that is action. Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta, is based on the understanding, intellect, buddhi. It is our understanding, the faculty, the highest faculty that we have, our entire worldview, our entire understanding of what's going on here, that has to be changed. So, to understanding means you need to ask questions. The second thing, shavana manana, which is asking questions and having clarity, you must think. If you cannot love, you cannot be a devotee. If you cannot work for the welfare of others, you can't be a karma yogi. If you can't focus, sit down and focus, you can't be a meditator. If you can't reason, if you, if you refuse to think, Advaita Vedanta won't work for you. You must think. So, um, uh, manana. It is the way of the philosopher. I'm, again, I'm careful. Philosopher, I don't mean you have to sign up for a philosophy course. Often that's more harmful than useful. Uh, not that you have to read all philosophy books, but philosopher means in the sense of thinking. Um, and then meditation. So after this stage of um, manana, what, what have you got? You've got, I now know, I, I not only know what the texts are telling me, I understand it. It's clear to me. I am convinced. First one, I know the teaching, but I don't understand it. I'm not clear about it. I'm not convinced about it. After reasoning, I know the teaching. Now I'm clear about it. I'm convinced. I'm sold. I got it. But then what's the problem now? One more problem remains. That's still not a living thing for me. I still feel more or less the same. And the promise was I'll go beyond suffering. I will attain fulfillment. That's not quite, I'm not quite there. Uh, I get it now what you are pointing me towards, but it's not a full-blown reality in my life yet. The promises have not been fulfilled. So for that, what you have learned, what you are now you have understood, what you have got clarity upon, you bear down on that. You settle down. You, you soak it in, in meditative processes. Intensely sit with what you have got, understood, the clarity, the conviction. Those are meditative processes. Those we will see in next session and the session after that. So you can see the meditative processes called Nididhyasana. They are Advaitic, non-dual meditation, specialized meditation techniques. They will work only if you understand. And you will understand only if you listen. So Shravana, Manana, Nididhyasana. You can't, in Vedanta, you cannot jump to the meditation. In Buddhism, you can jump to the meditation. But in Vedanta, you can't jump to the meditation. You have to understand in Advaita Vedanta. It's like you think deeply about what you learned in class. Oh, so thinking deeply is important. I will not go to class. But then what do you think deeply about? All right. Still haven't started. Now we know Shavana, Manana, Niridhyasana. Uh, the 
This is the core practice. All other practices are there. We are not denying the role of karma yoga, bhakti yoga, and, and, and raja yoga or meditation. They're all supporting. But the core practice is jnana yoga. What is jnana yoga? Shavana, manana, nidityasana. You're systematically studying Vedanta, reasoning it through till you get conviction and clarity. And finally, meditating upon your, your absolute clarity and conviction till it becomes a living reality for you, which Swami Vivekananda called assimilating this knowledge. He says, till it tingles with every drop of your blood, I am that, uh, Soham, I am he, I am that. Okay. Now the core of Advaita Vedanta itself, the teaching, um, I will go through very fast, but then we'll keep coming back to it. It is this. We do not know what we are. We, we think, the moment we are asked what we are, we don't, we don't think about it. But if you are asked, our first reaction is, oh, I am this thing here. What do you mean by this thing? Body? Well, yes, body and um, the mind, um, body, mind, I guess that's it. The person, this person. I am this person. I'm Swami Sarvapriyananda. Who else would I be? This instinctive identification with the body, mind. Are you all these things around you? No, 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 absolutely not. There are other things. Are you all these people? Of course not. They are others. They are people. I am, I am the subject. These are all objects. I am a person. They are all persons. And there are living beings and there are non-living things. This worldview about myself and the world, this Advaita Vedanta says is dramatically mistaken. And this is the, this is the cause of all our problems. Luckily, the good news is it can be corrected. Pretty, uh, I won't say easy. Well, yes, let me say easily. It can be corrected pretty easily. The insight, the breakthrough, it's a pretty flimsy uh, layer of a veil of illusion which separates us from the truth about ourselves. As Vivekananda used to say, if only you knew, um, uh, if, you, if only you knew what you truly are, if only you knew the truth about yourselves. So what is that truth about ourselves that we have to see? Advaita Vedanta insists that thou art, you are Brahman. It basically says, you are this uh, unlimited uh, awareness, immortal awareness right now. And you can discover it. And you can stabilize yourself in that awareness. And you can live like that. And that solves your problem. How do you do that? Very quickly. I have mentioned these methods. In, you will see in many of my talks and in many of the books, these methods are scattered. But quickly, um, three ways. Any one of which we'll do. We will see these ways uh, next time and time after that. Um, one way is the Panchakosha. Another way is the Avasthat. Panchakosha, five sheets of the human personality. Another one is the Avasthatraya, the three states of, uh, of our waking, dreaming, deep sleep. A more basic way is Drig Drishya, subject, object, uh, knower and known, seer and seen. And these I've talked about extensively. What is done is, for example, I'll quickly lead you through all three and you will see they all lead to the same thing. Um, Drig Drishya. Take, so now when I talk about it, you'll have to do three things corresponding to hearing, reasoning and, and meditation. First corresponding to hearing is, what did he say? That's one. And after, yeah, I know what he said. The second thing will be, do I get it? Is it clear to me? Do I understand it, what he's saying? If not, I can always ask later on. 
And the third thing will be important. Is it a fact? Let me check. Advaita Vedanta has this beauty about it that you can actually always check. Nothing, nothing in Advaita Vedanta or almost nothing in Advaita Vedanta is a matter of speculation, faith or belief. The insistence is it's always directly available to us right now. So you can always check and ask yourself, is it a fact? If it is not a fact, Advaita insists it, it, it has to be a fact. If you feel it's not a fact, it still sounds speculative, still sounds theoretical, ask why, where am I getting stuck? You examine it yourself and ask the teacher. It'll take a little bit of time maybe, but you'll, get, you'll make a breakthrough. So let's take the first method. I'll go through the three basic methods. One is the method of the seer and the seeing. Um, you are looking at the screen, looking at me in the screen. Now, the screen is the object and the eyes are the, the screen is the scene, the eyes are the seer. The eyes are seeing the screen. Said, so, okay. Attend not to the screen, but attend to the eyes. Attend means uh, draw your attention, become more aware of your eyes than the object which they are seeing. Uh, the screen, the, you know, the screen, you can see many things. You can see many things. Same eye, pair of eyes sees many things. Seer is one, seen are many. The uh, same pair of eyes not changing particularly. They can see a lot of changes from the morning till now. So many things have changed, which you have been seeing. The scene keep changing. The seer does not change. And the seer, most importantly, the seer and the scene are different. What you are seeing on the screen is physically different from your eyes. In fact, the only thing that the eyes cannot see are the eyes themselves. To see something with the eyes, you, they have to be physically different. And of course, visible, um, large enough and clear enough to be visible to the eyes. They must be physically different. The seer and the scene are different. Three things. The seer is one, the scene are many. The seer is unchanging, the scene are changing. And the seer is, um, uh, and the seer and the scene are different. In a very naive, simple way. Don't be too philosophical about it. Moving on. You're now aware of the eyes. Notice. The eyes themselves, you are aware of. What's aware of the eyes? The mind is aware of the eyes. My eyes are open, my eyes are closed, I need glasses. All these things about my eyes, who knows? The mind knows. These are thoughts about my eyes. So the mind is the seer, now the seer within quotes. The mind does not actually physically see anything. It is aware of, it thinks about, it objectifies. What? The eyes. That which was the seer earlier is now the scene. Uh, the mind is the seer. Mind seer, by now I mean knower. And the eyes are known, seen. Again, those three things. Many things the mind can think about. Not only the eyes, the nose, the ears, all the sense organs. In fact, everything in the world. The mind thinks about everything. The mind being itself, it can think about many things. Seer is one, seen are many. The mind being itself, the things it thinks about keeps, keeps on changing. The mind keeps on changing also, but mind changes into mind, thoughts into more thoughts. But the world, it changes in so many ways. So the scene to keep changing, the seer is relatively unchanging. But most important, the seer and the scene are different. The mind, which is the thinker of thoughts, is different from what it thinks about. So the mind is the seer and the eyes are the scene. What about the world, the screen and the Swami in the screen? It's still the scene, it's always the scene. The eyes which were the seer earlier now have become the scene. You go further, the mind itself, thoughts, feelings, emotions, 
ideas, memories, these keep on coming and going. This is what we call the mind. But in and through all of that, shining is this awareness. Now, I am aware of my mind. If you are not, look into the mind. You will find thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas, questions. You say, Swami, I don't find anything. Good, the mind is empty. So the emptiness, you find emptiness. So the mind, thoughts, and the absence of thoughts, that is the scene. If it is the scene, there must be a seer. The mind has many, many thoughts, feelings, emotions. But the seer of all of them is one. The mind keeps changing all the time, from morning till night, so many thoughts, feelings, ideas, um, projects, uh, energetic, tired, bored, all of that is changing. All of them, we must admit, they were noted, illumined, revealed by one awareness. And so the seer of the mind is unchanging, the scene is changing, the mind is changing. And therefore the seer and the scene being different, the seer of the mind must be different from the mind. Who are you? When you are seeing the laptop and through the eyes, on which side are you? There or here? I'm here. When I'm observing the eyes, thinking about the eyes with the mind, which side am I? Am I this, the eyes which are an object or the mind which is the thinker? I'm the mind. When I'm aware of the thoughts and feelings of the mind, which am I? Am I a thought or a feeling or that which is aware of the thought and feeling? I'm the awareness. The awareness is the original one and only seer. Mind is seen. Eyes and sense organs and body is seen. The world is seen. The world, body, um, sense organs, mind, they are different from the awareness which you are. I'm rushing through it. If you want a more slow and careful exposition of this, the whole teaching, 12 parts, Drik Drishya Viveka, it's available on, freely on the website of your know, YouTube channel of um, the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Drik Drishya Viveka, about a 12-hour series on just this method. I'm just rushing through it, hoping that many of you have seen it already, or some of it at least. And this consciousness, this awareness is who I am. It is not changing. It is not many. It is not a thing out there. It's, an, it's, it's the pure subject, never an object. Same thing we come through. The pancha kosha, the, layer of the, the method of the five layers of the human personality. Uh, which you find in the Taittiriya Upanishad, second chapter of the Taittiriya Upanishad. Start with the body. The question is, who am I? And we try to find it in our experience. Start with the body, physical body. Am I the body? And then we see the body is changing from childhood to youth to middle age to old age. And I am the same one who was the child. And I agree that I was the young person. I am the middle-aged person. I am, I'll be the old person. That means... Child, middle-aged, old, these are the states of the body. The body is changing. And if I am one and the same, I admit I was the same, how can I, the unchanging and the changing, be the same thing? Changing and unchanging cannot be the same thing. So I, the unchanging experiencer of the changing body, cannot be the body. And then you, another, other ways are there. You can apply Drigdrishya Viveka here. I am the witness, I am the experiencer of the body. The body is something that I experience. The seer and the seen must be different. And so the body is not me. You can apply um, uh, awareness and uh, you know, object of awareness. I am aware of the body, 
awareness has not changed thought changed so um awareness and uh, not aware chit jada you cannot be the mind you look further inwards the faculty of understanding intellect buddhi um one second the faculty of understanding the buddhi that um, also we are not because that also changing our understanding is changing you are aware of your understanding drashta and drishya and you are awareness even the buddhi understanding is not awareness that might sound like a strange thing to say so we are in such subtle realms that most people don't think in this way the intellect suppose you get something you suddenly understand that um, oh seer and seen are different seer and seen are different this thought seer and seen are different this understanding the seer and seen are different this is also something you are aware of it's not aware this understanding seer and seen are different is it saying hey swami you got me all right uh, it, no it's not aware of me it's not aware of anything it's it's just a state of the buddhi of the intellect it's made a breakthrough that's all you are not the intellect also if you push beyond that you will hit a blank wall beyond the mind you will hit just blankness if you suppose you drop awareness of the mind no thinking no understanding no memory no desire blank but that blank is also an object because you are aware of the blank the awareness illumines the absence of thoughts which is that blankness which is basically what happens in deep sleep there are no thoughts no feelings no perceptions but that's a blankness the moment you wake up you recall a blankness where at the time of the blankness you cannot think if you think then the mind is active but afterwards when the mind becomes active you can always reflexively go back and say that there was a time when the mind was not active which means that time was revealed by an awareness okay what i've just done is the five sheets of the human personality physical annamaya kosha vital pranamaya kosha mental manomaya kosha Uh, intellectual vigyanamaya kosha subtler and subtler and subtler inwards and inwards and inwards and the blankness beyond everything the the darkness beyond the mind anandamaya kosha the bliss sheath beyond these the witness of all of these illumining all of these their activities and their absence of their activities is is you the awareness you are not physical like the body the awareness is not physical you are not vital prana like the like the pranamaya kosha you are not a thought or an or an idea like the manomaya or vigyanamaya kosha you are not nothing either blankness like the uh, anandamaya kosha you are awareness you are of the nature of light you illumine activities of all these five sheets same thing do you notice by the way of the seer and the seen and by the way of these five sheets we are basically coming to the same awareness it is the same awareness which reveals your waking it reveals all our experiences in waking it reveals illumines our dreams it illumines the deepness the the darkness of deep sleep also that is called the fourth in the way of the three three states waking dreaming deep sleep mandukya upanishad that also points to that same awareness by the way of drigdrishya seer and seen you it points to that one unchanging light of awareness which you are by the way of the five sheets panchakosha viveka 
it points to that one unchanging light of awareness which you are. By the way of the three states of waking, dreaming, deep sleep, Mandukya, I have what, 50, 60 classes on the Mandukya Karika, all they point to you the unchanging awareness. This is what, this awareness is what is meant when the teacher says, Tat Tvam Asi, that thou art. Where? Here and everywhere. When? Now and all the time. You are that, that reality. What is that reality? Let's see what we have found. It's like this awareness which we are, in some sense we all know that we are awareness. I mean, it's not, we don't think in terms of see or seen, five sheets and three states, all that sounds very fancy, but we all know we are aware. But we are like that washerman who was not aware of the value of the diamond which he had got. The story which Sri Ramakrishna tells of a washerman uh, who, so to think of India, where um, the washerman would go around collecting your dirty laundry and would take it to the river bank and they would scrub it dry and they would use a stone to scrub. You don't want to see what they do to your uh, fancy clothes, but they get it clean. Now this washerman, he found a strange stone on the river bank and he found it's very good for scrubbing clothes. So he used it for scrubbing clothes. Now he thought it's, it's rather unique. And he had the good sense to go and ask. He said, I, I'm an uneducated man, but my friend, the vegetable seller, uh, he is more knowledgeable about these things than me. Let me go and ask him. And I, he showed him that stone and he said, how much will you give me for it? And the vegetable seller said, I've never seen such a fancy stone. I'll give you 10 rupees for it. The washerman had the good sense to hold on to the stone. So finally, the story is he goes to a jeweler, a diamond merchant. And the diamond merchant says, I've never seen such a huge diamond. It's magnificent. I'll give you 10 million rupees for it. And so all the wants, all these poverty of the washerman was removed because of that diamond, which he had all the time. And he was using it to scrub clothes. And different people valued it differently until you went to the diamond merchant who said, you have the solution to all your problems right there. And you've been using it, but you've been using it for, to scrub clothes. This awareness which we have, which we are actually, this is the solution, this is the secret of the universe right there. But we are using it like the washerman. What do we use it for? We use it day and night. We use it to see and smell and taste and touch. We use it to hear. We use it to quarrel and we use it to feel unhappy. We use it for, uh, uh, to earn money and to fight wars and, and to be miserable. And uh, we use it for learning philosophy and going to and becoming religious. All the things of our life, the entire drama of our life is played out by that, that, that awareness, that washerman stone which we have got. Let's now, so luckily we have come to Advaita, which is the diamond merchant, who's now going to introduce us to the wonders of this, this stone which we have got, this awareness which we have got. What are the wonders? You do not die. Sri Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, he says, Death is just like, he gives two wonderful examples. One is very famous, just as you get rid of a suit of old clothes, of soiled clothes and put on a new suit. Similarly, we get rid of this body and when it's no longer functional and we put on a new one. See, from a Vedantic perspective, what happens at death? From a Vedantic perspective, what's going on here? You are that awareness, there's no doubt, but that awareness is clothed in, as we just saw, five sheets. 
So there's the sheet called the subtle body, mind and intellect and prana. And there's the sheet called the physical body, the gross body. So that we have the physical body and the subtle body. And there's something called the causal body also. And beyond that, that awareness, which we are. And you see, it sounds pretty speculative here, Swami. Not at all. You can check right now. You can check right now. Physical body, nobody asks for proof. Everybody sees it. It's, it's a public fact here. What about the subtle body? That sounds esoteric. No, no, no. Nothing esoteric about it. Just take a look. You have thoughts and feelings and emotions, ideas, memories, the very personality, the person you think you are. That's the subtle body. That's all. That's the subtle body. Technically, Advaita Vedanta will say it is Pranamaya Kosha, Manomaya Kosha, Vijnanamaya Kosha. This is called Sukshma Sharira, subtle body. Completely a matter of fact for you. No doctor or scientist will be able to detect it. And yet for you, it's the most important fact. Aren't your thoughts a fact? Aren't your emotions and desires a fact? Aren't your memories and personality a fact for you? The most important fact, it's you. It's what we normally think without any Vedanta. We normally think that's who I am. Tell me one doctor who has been able to detect one thought. One neuroscientist who has been able to detect one perception. None. I tell you none. I tell you it's in, impossible in, in principle. What can they detect? They can detect at the most the subtlest activities in the physical body. The tiny firings of, brain, of, of neurons, electrical activity in the neurons in the brain. That's the last thing you can detect. As long as you are using physical instruments, the last thing you can detect is a physical activity. But beyond that, the subtle activity, thoughts, feelings, emotions, which are clear to every one of you. If it's not clear to you, you're a zombie. The American term for zombie is that there's a physical living body, but there's nobody inside. The lights are off inside. Uh, I trust none of us here are zombies. So if you're not a zombie, you have a subtle body. But what the uniqueness of Vedanta is, normally we think that it's not a body. That's me. You're talking about me. It's not you. It's a body. It's as much not you as these clothes are not you. You may be wearing it now, but they're not stuck to you. They are not you. Just as you are not this uh, suit of clothes you're wearing, you are not even the physical body, you're not even the subtle body. But at death, what happens is this. The Vedantic idea of death is the physical body dies. So just last week, we had a panel. It was a pretty serious, one of the most serious panels I attended. They invited um, a priest, a rabbi, and a swami. And it's not a joke. <laughs> uh, it's about... It was just the opposite of a joke, in fact. It was about the most serious of things. It was about DNR, do not resuscitate. So uh, two-hour-long discussion about um, you know, the very serious decision to let go of somebody if they have not given a DNR declaration, a do not resuscitate declaration. How do you pull the plug? Can you, should you, would you, could you? Um, so this discussion. But then what is the Vedantic idea of death? It's just the physical body, what you see, which happens, physical body that dies. Not the person, not the subtle body. The Swami, prove it. Very easy, actually. You have two series going together, body and mind. But you have access as an outside observer. You have access only to the body. About the person inside, we have only the reports coming from you, from that body. 
I have a thought, I have a pain, I have a desire, I have a feeling. Who is telling you? It's coming through that body. Now you know when the physical body dies, that's death. That second series to, to which you had only access to the physical body, how are you claiming for sure that that series is also dead? How do you know? That series has no access to you anymore, nor do you have any access to that. It could still be going on, but it, you just can't access it. Not relevant, but it's such a touching story I would like to tell you here. It, was, it came up in our discussions. So a um, few years back, I happened to meet this gentleman in, in Dallas. Uh, he's a, a shaman. You know what a shaman is? Um, Native American uh, traditions. So he is a bit of a psychic, a very uh, interesting character. So he's known for being able to interact with um, that second series, you know, after death, um, he can actually, in some cases, interact with the person. He's very clear. He says, I have absolutely, it's a clear fact to me that people do not die with the death of the body. In so many cases, I have actually interacted with, they have um, talked to me, I have talked to them. In some cases, they have come back after a near-death experience. And so we have corroborated it. When the second, the body also comes back, the two series are together, and that person says, yes, this is what you said to me. This is what I said to you when I was so-called, the body was dead. So, but the touching story is this. This, this the discussion was about do not resuscitate. Okay, so it's, um, but it's so moving. I would, would like to share this with you. So this gentleman, he told us this story, a gathering of people in Dallas. He said, one of the most um, moving cases that I was called in for was for a little girl who was brain dead and who was on life support machinery and there was no hope, there's no chance. Medically, there's no chance of coming back. The body is finished. I mean, it's just being kept alive by these machines. And uh, they had even removed her from the hospital, sent her back home for palliative, um, not even palliative care, just the last few days. And the parents were being urged to, you know, like do that DNR, uh, remove the life support and uh, let her go. And she was a very little kid. And finally the parents agreed. They said that they realized there's nothing else we can do actually. And what's the point of just keeping a shell alive like this? So the legal formalities, so they had called him in also. And he also said, yeah, that's, that's a good decision. You can, you can do that. And he said, I had nothing more to do because there were lawyers there. There was the police there. There were doctors there. They were uh, at home and they wanted to pull the plug on that child. Um, and the parents were there. So he said, I went out. I was sitting this shaman. He said, I was sitting in the lawn outside. And uh, I saw they'd taken the decision. Then finally the cars pulled out of the driveway, the lawyers and the doctors and the police went away. The technicians, they packed up the machines, they went away. Minutes later, the parents shouted out to me and they implored me to come inside. So I, he said, I ran back inside, what's wrong? They expected that immediately the heartbeat which was supported that end would stop. They removed the machines and it was all removed heartbeat and breathing and everything stopped. Within seconds, it started back on again by itself. So the heart is beating, the child is breathing on her own without any machines. Now, what do you do? She's still technically brain dead. There's no reaction. She's in deep coma. There is no feeding going on, no breathing, no heart machine, no heart lung machine, nothing, no support. Are you going to kill her? 
You'll have to actually have to suffocate her to well, let her go away. No, but now what do you do now? You have removed the machines and she's living by herself. So the parents were stunned. What do we do now? And they implored him, can you do something? So he said, I can try. And he put up like, a, like, a, you know, like certain rituals he did. And they have certain feathers they put in there. And he said, I clearly felt the presence of the little girl. And I asked her, what is the matter? What are you doing? And she said, um, I know I can't live in this body. I will go, but my mother will cry. So I can't go. You tell her to let me go. So he actually told this, it was so uh, moving, you know, the people in the audience had there was hardly anybody with a dry eye there. Uh, he said, I told the mother and she agreed. And she sat with that little uh, child, you know, with the, um, and talked to her sweetly and said that we love you and we will always remember you. And I know that you want to go. Don't worry. I understand that you're still there, that you have not gone anywhere and you'll be in a much better place and uh, go happily. We'll all be happy. Don't worry. I'll, I'll be happy. And as she went on saying this, and the um, breathing stopped, the heartbeat stopped, and she was gone. And he said, I clearly felt a presence move away from that place, and she was gone. Now, what an interesting thing. Then that, uh, clearly, the two cities are different. So there's a, the idea that there's a subtle body which inhabits this physical body for some time, and at death, only the physical body falls away. But Vedanta pushes further. You are not even the subtle body. You are not even that person. That individual human person which we are, the personality. Even that changes. That's changing continuously. Moment to moment, thoughts, feelings, emotions, likes, dislikes. Lifetime after lifetime, so many changes. You are not even that. You are that one light which is immortal. Even the subtle body is technically immortal in the sense why I'm saying technically, because it changes and it's subject to many kinds of modifications. And finally, it goes away also. At the time of enlightenment, it is said after the death of the physical body, the subtle body also, it's also a body. It's also made of matter. It's called subtle matter. It melts back into a nature, into, into uh, the ultimate reality. It, and you remain as uh, unlimited consciousness. So that's at the final birth, the, the birth in which you will be enlightened. And when the, that body dies, the physical body dies, and then that second series, the subtle body also disappears. So you are no longer encased in a, in a body, neither physical nor subtle. Anyway, so that's the first thing we note about this consciousness. It's immortal. It does not die. Krishna says, as you change clothes, you change bodies. Death is, is, you've done it a thousand times earlier, 10,000 times earlier. Nobody can stop this body from dying, but it's really nothing to you. You are masters at it. <laughs> you accomplish it just like that, going from a body to the other body. No need absolutely to be afraid of death. One great, great advantage, big, big step forward. I am already that immortal awareness not physical body, not even the subtle body. Even the subtle body will survive the death of this physical body. I'm not even that. I am there when the subtle body shuts down in deep sleep, for example. I'm still there. But just that I can't think. It's like the subtle body is like a set of apps. You have a phone which can do many things. 
only if you have the apps, but the, all the material is there, Cap capacities are there. If the app is working, you can do those things. The phone, your phone can do those things, but they are just apps. The subtle body is a set of apps you've got. Second, so immortal, immortal in Sanskrit, nitya, eternal. You are that eternal awareness. Death is nothing to you. It's a shadow passing on you. You are that like the vast blue sky in which clouds gather and the movement of clouds and the storm, that's a lifetime. And slowly the clouds dissipate and it goes and the vast blue sky is left. That's a life over. But you were always the vast blue sky. The clouds were born in you. They played around in you and they disappeared back. You are exactly the same. Okay. Second, even deeper. All that you are aware of, the world, the body, the mind, they are not real. They are appearances. They are nothing other than you, the awareness, appearing to you with names and forms. A good example is this. In your dreams, as we fall asleep, the world disappears before us. We, even the fact that I'm sleeping on the bed, this physical body, that also goes away. Um, a world appears, a world of dreams appears to us. Places, peoples, objects, activities, and a body, which I call myself. I'm in that dream too. Nowadays, we can imagine it very nicely as a virtual reality. So a kind of dream virtual reality appears to us in every dream. And we are active. We say things, we do things, and we feel it's a, like a living experience. We don't doubt it. Um, now, when we wake up, we realize all those places and people and activities, including the body, which I thought I was, all of that merges back into me, the dreamer's mind. And I realized none of that was anything apart from my mind. I did not actually go to those places. I did not actually meet those people. I did not actually do those things or eat that stuff uh, or say those things also. All of it was my mind playing around, projecting it. This awareness has projections. What are these projections? These projections, the first projection of awareness is the mind, a sense of I and thoughts and emotions and ideas and memories. The next set of projections is a set of senses, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching. And then the next set of projections is an object to the senses, forms that you see, um, touch, things which you touch, smell, and taste, and all those objects of your senses. And that what, that's what constitutes a so-called physical solid world out there. They are sensory uh, experiences, appearing to the sense powers, which are projections from the mind, which is a projection from awareness. None of it actually physically a second reality apart from awareness. Not being a second reality apart from awareness, this is called non-dualism, non-dualism of the awareness. It appears to be a second. I like that story about that businessman, you know, in India, who got into debt and uh, so he had to pawn off his favorite uh, image of Ganesha and he goes to the gold, gold uh, the, the jeweler and says give me some money and keep this image of Ganesha uh, how much will you give me for Ganesha this much money how much will you give me for the mouse you know, Ganesha has a little mouse golden mouse and he said it's the same rate same by the same rate and the man was furious what 
Ganesha that God has the same rate as a mouse. And the goldsmith said, sir, to you it's Ganesha and it's a mouse. For me, it's gold. Uh, in the same way, these are names and forms which appear, names, forms, and activities, names, forms, and functions, Sanskrit, Nama, Rupa, Vyavahara, appearing on the surface of that radiance of consciousness, which you are. You are that consciousness. And everything that you experience is not a second reality appear, uh, apart from you. If you see yourself as a body and the person, these are all second realities. Imagine, you in your dream, whatever you see it appears to be a second reality apart from you. But the moment you wake up, everything that you saw in your dream was you. From your consciousness perspective, from your body perspective, all these are separate from you. But from your awareness perspective, um, all this world is nothing other than what you sense. All that you sense is nothing other than your mind. And all your mind is nothing other than like waves on the surface of an ocean, the ocean of consciousness, which you are. It's a non-dual reality. There's a logic behind it. There's no time. That's why I'm not telling you. I wanted to explore a little further. This is the meaning of Brahma Satyam Jagat Mithya. Brahman or consciousness, you are the reality and the world is an appearance. What is the world? The world you see, hear, smell, taste. But seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, it's nothing apart from you, the mind. You, the mind, is nothing apart from the consciousness, which is the real you. The world is an appearance. The world is not a second reality apart from you. But this is also another way of saying that everything in the world is you. You see, God is the only reality. The world is false. They're the same statement. Can you think about it in this way? All this is nothing other than God. All this is false. It is false as an independent, separate material world which we think about it. No, that's not, the, that's not the reality. But as God, it's the reality. And we're talking about the same thing. It is the same thing to say Brahma Satyam and Jagat Mithya. It's the same thing to say the rope is real and the snake is false. The same thing. You're saying the same thing. If this world were real, then Brahman, the ultimate reality, would have to be some other reality. Because this is a real world. But the world is not real. In ignorance, it's a world. In knowledge, it is you, the consciousness. Another point. There is no limit to this consciousness. Right now, we feel we are limited. And what do I mean limited? Here I am. I'm here in New York and in Manhattan and in the Vedanta Society, in my room, in my chair. I'm limited. I'm limited in space. I'm limited in time. I was born on that date so many years ago and I'm going to die in a few, um, few years hence since some particular date. I'm limited in time. I had a beginning, I'll have an end. And I'm limited as a person. This person, I'm not anything else. I'm just Sarva Priyananda. These limits are not there in consciousness. Consciousness, or this awareness, Brahman, Atman, whatever you call it, the real you, unlimited. How so? Space is in you, the awareness. You, the awareness, are not in space. I like this. Uh, I, I tell this example many times. When this was being taught in an ashram in Haridwar, a monk at the back, you know, when the teacher said, 
uh, you are all pervading awareness. And the monk at the back uh, raised his hand and said, hey, wait a minute, hold it right there. Let alone being all pervading. I am right here. I'm not even there where you are teaching from. I'm just here sitting in my seat. How can I be all pervading? I don't even pervade this hall. I'm here, not there in Hindi. I'm here and not there. How can I be all pervading? And the answer was wonderful. The teacher said, um, he said, but here and there, are they not both in your awareness? Yaha or waha? Kya dono hi tumme nahi hai in Chetan mein? In what sense? Suppose you say in your dream, it's a dream, you don't know it's a dream. I'm sitting here and then somebody comes to me in the dream and says, look, all of this, the park and the sky and the place and all these people, they are all in you, all spaces within you. I say, what nonsense? I'm right here. I'm not even there. And those places are far apart. And that's the east side of Manhattan. That's the west side of Manhattan. They're all separate from me. But when I wake up, who will be right? That man in the dream who told me the whole thing was within you will be right. So, okay, that's an example of, of, of a dream. But how is that true in the waking state? In the waking state, think about it. Where is the limit of your awareness? You say, but Swami, what do you mean? Um, take a look around. You can only see the limits of your walls. What's beyond your walls is beyond your awareness. No. There's a difference between perception, knowledge, and awareness. What I see here, it is in my awareness as the scene. But there's something vast beyond this. I know. It's in my awareness as the unseen, unknown. But still in my awareness. If I ever were to see it, I would see it only in my awareness. If I ever were to hear it, I would hear it only in my awareness. The world exists as known and unknown in awareness. And these set, sets of known and unknown, they are permeable sets. Sometimes things keep coming from the unknown set into the known, going from the known set into the unknown. Known and unknown together make up your awareness. So, there is no limit to your awareness. Time is not a limit, space is not a limit. Time and space are in awareness. Awareness is not in time and space. Awareness is, you're not a slice of uh, awareness located in a particular space. Rather, space is something that appears to you in awareness, just like a dream. Time, you're not a, like a flash of awareness moving from past to present to future. Past, present and future move back and forth in, in you, the awareness. Just track it in your experience, you'll see it is true. Time and space do not limit you. You're unlimited in time and space. It's like, a, like water. If you look at the waves in the ocean, the waves seem to have boundaries. This wave, that wave, that wave. But if you look at water, where is the boundary between one wave and the other? It's all water. The wave is water, that wave is water, in between is also water, the boundary also is water. It's one seamless water. In the same way, it's one seamless awareness, which appears as you, the subject, and the objective universe. You, the seer, and the seen. Swami Vivekananda says, one alone exists. It appears as uh, nature and soul. Nature means this material universe. Soul means the experiencing person. It is one seamless whole. One endless, without any distinction, without any barrier. One, one awareness. 
The universe is one with you. Am I one with the universe? No. That's an interesting thing. All the movies on the screen are one with the screen. No movie, no tragedy, no comedy, nothing good and bad movies, nothing can exist without the screen. But the screen is not one with the movies. The screen can, is completely independent of the movies. It can exist with a comedy, it can exist with a tragedy, it can exist without a movie. You are like that screen in awareness. All the worlds, they exist in you. None of them uh, exist apart from you. But you, the consciousness, the awareness, you can exist apart from the worlds. When the worlds disappear in the great pralaya, the, the dissolution of the worlds at the end of the cycle of the universe, or in deep sleep, you are the awareness, you still exist. You are unlimited. And this awareness is not an object. Very important. Where is this awareness? What is this? How can I grasp it? You can never grasp it as an object. Krishna says, aprameya. It's not an object of knowledge. Aprameya, prama means uh, the instrument of knowledge. So, or, or correct knowledge. Pramana is this instrument by which you know. So the eyes see. Eyes are an instrument of knowledge. Ears are an instrument of knowledge. Inference is an instrument of knowledge. And so on and so forth. All of them reveal objects in the world. Eyes reveal forms, ears reveal sound, uh, scientific inference reveals scientific truths about the world. And all of them are powered, illumined by you, the awareness. None of them reveal you, you reveal them. Instrument of knowledge, pramana, the object of knowledge, prameya, and the knowledge, prama. Instrument, instrument of knowledge, eyes. Object of knowledge, um, this, this book. Eyes are the instrument of knowledge. This is the object of knowledge. And the knowledge I'm having that I see the book. All three are revealed by I, the consciousness. I, the knower, the eyes themselves, the, um, the book and the knowledge of the book are revealed by I, the consciousness. You, the consciousness, you shining, everything else shines. By your light, everything is lit up. It is the pure subject. It's never an object. The Ken Upanishad says this again and again. Yat Marasana Manute Yenahur Manumatam Tadeva Brahmatvam Vidhi Nedam Yadidam Upasate. What um, by which the mind thinks, but which the mind cannot think about. That is consciousness, that is awareness. The mind does it, look at it right now. It's not being, they're not being cute or being very profound. This is telling a fact. All the thoughts of the mind, all the thinking, memories, desires, they're all there in awareness. By that, the mind thinks. It, it, awareness reveals the activities of the mind. But nothing in the mind can reveal awareness. It's like the sun shines on the moon and the moonlight reveals the world. Consciousness or awareness shines on the mind and the mind can think about the world. But the moonlight does not reveal the sun. It's impossible. First of all, the moonlight is nothing other than the sunlight. And second, the moonlight is not necessary to reveal the sun. The sun blazes forth with its own light, a million times more bright. So similarly, you, the consciousness, you shining on the mind and the senses, you reveal thoughts and seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and their respective objects. None of them can reveal you. 
what the uh, by which the eyes see but which the eyes cannot see know that to be brahman not what you think is as this object it's not something that you see or hear or smell or taste or touch or think about or speak about but all thinking speaking hearing smelling tasting touching are because of that in language of the upanishads that shining everything else shines by its light everything is illumined tameva bhanta anubhati sarvam tasya bhasha sarvam idam vibhati you shining everything else shines by your light everything is illumined one more point we are all exploring this awareness which you are this awareness the way i am talking about it is it subject to change can it change or is all change revealed by awareness birth aging death health disease movement all of these changes in the world they are revealed by awareness does the awareness itself change can it change logically it's impossible if it does change and that awareness if you can note that change then to what will it be revealed to awareness alone who else will reveal a change in the awareness except awareness then that change becomes an object it's no longer awareness do you see what i mean if there is a change in something in the world it is revealed to you the awareness if there is a change in you the awareness to what will it be revealed is it revealed to me the awareness in that case you are the revealer of the change the change is no longer in you because remember seer and seen are different you might say at this point well there might be a change in me the awareness which i might not know about which i might not reveal if that is so there is no use talking about it <laughs> if there is then anything you can talk about which can never be known so it, if it cannot ever be known no need to talk about it it should at least be in principle be knowable or illuminable by uh, consciousness so consciousness does not change you the awareness you do not change everything else changes what have we been saying so far i'll put it together you the awareness revealed by the method of drigdrishya seer and seen you the awareness revealed by the method of the five sheets you the awareness revealed by the method of the three states waking dreaming and deep sleep that awareness is immortal will not die is not born either it reveals the birth and death of the body it reveals the transmigration like that little girl going away from the dying body to uh, to its destiny that subtle body going from body to body that is revealed by you the awareness you are that immortal awareness no death for you second you are the reality everything else is only your appearance you are real the world is an appearance brahma satyam jagat mithya means you are the reality of which the world you the awareness not you the person you the awareness is the reality the person immediately says that's cool i am the only reality no if you if you think you are the only reality as the person that's the philosophical fault called solipsism uh, no uh, you are the reality as as the one awareness the world is an appearance it's not a second reality apart from you therefore you the awareness are non dual advaitam third you the awareness are limitless space does not limit you because it appears in you you are not appearing in space just like a dream time does not limit you you are the experiencer of time time does not experience you no object no being 
No, nothing in the world limits you because they all are in you. Just as a wave cannot limit water, right? A wave cannot limit water because every bit of the wave is water only. Nothing in the world can limit you. You are unlimited. You are not an object. You are the pure subject, apramaya. You reveal the activities of the mind, intellect, senses. They do not reveal you. You are the pure subject. Therefore, you cannot be known as an object. You cannot be seen, smelled, touched, tasted. You the awareness. You cannot be thought about. You cannot be expressed in language. But all of that is being done because of you, your presence. You blessing the senses and the mind and the intellect. The senses can see, hear, smell, taste, touch. They can, mind can think, intellect can understand, memory can remember. Um, all of it functions because of you. All of it is active because of you. And they are, remember, they are nothing other than you. They are all appearances in you. And you are beyond any kind of change. All changes are in this world of appearance. You do not change. Therefore, putting it all together, you are not subject to this cycle of birth and death. You are not a part of this chain of karma. You are not a doer of deeds, nor are you the sufferer of the consequences of those deeds. Though you reveal the entire game, it's only because you, the consciousness, that uh, the mind illumined by that consciousness and associated with the body does deeds. And the so-called person gets the results of those deeds. Karma functions at that level. You are not bound by karma. But karma appears in you. Huh? So you are free of this whole cycle of karma. This freedom from the cycle of karma is called moksha, mukta. You say, but Swami, that means I am free right now. Yes, you are. You are free right now. As consciousness, you are free of karma. The moksha which Vedanta talks about, which all these systems of philosophy have been talking, talking about, to attain moksha, liberation, freedom from cycle of birth and death, freedom from karma. You have it already. It's your very nature. You are free. Because you are eternal, immortal. Because you are the reality of which the world is an appearance, non-dual. Because you are limitless, in which time and space have their play, but you are not in that. Uh, because you are changeless, because of that, you are free of uh, karma. You are free of bondage. You are liberated. Knowing this reality, understanding it, is the result of shavana and manana. Once some kind of clarity dawns, and you can see right now, it's not all that easy, but once that kind, some kind of clarity dawns, then you move on to the next stage of making it a living reality through meditation. When we do it through living, uh, make it a living reality through meditation, that is called jivan mukti, living liberation. That we can actually manifest that, we can live that truth in our day-to-day -day activities, in the midst of aggravations, in the midst of being, um, acting like an embodied being in the midst of all of these others. So you will play this role of being the person, but now you know you are not a person anymore. You are an impersonal reality, an infinite impersonal reality. Living like that is called Jivan Mukti, free while living. And that's the goal of Advaita Vedanta. So we'll take it forward in the next class. I've gone a little bit over time, but I think I've been able to convey. Quick outline. What did I do? What is Vedanta? What are the main texts? What it is not? What is Vedanta? What it is not? Vedanta is very simple. Tattvamasi. What it is not? What is the process? Hearing, reflection, meditation. 
when the actual inquiry method of seer and seeing method of the five sheets method of the three states all of these they take months and months to explain and i've got there are talks and they're available all over the place um, then having got a good grasp on what the teaching is you explore it realize your immortality realize your infinitude realize that you are the truth of which the world is an appearance realize that you are beyond change and beyond death realize that you are already free then make it living make it a fact make it effortless make it effortless how do you do that and that is what we'll see in the next two classes om shanti 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 hari om tat sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu Om Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu